Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today I'm joined by the lovely Dr. Kath Giles. Kath is a partner at Brandon Capital, as well as currently working as Director and CEO of OncoRes Medical. With both a medical degree and an MBA to her name, Kath's career has taken her to all corners of the working world, from finance and investing to healthcare and technology to startups and non-for-profits. Kath also happens to be a skilled seamstress, making clothes for herself and her family. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, Dr. Kath Giles. Oh, thanks very much, Elise, for having me. It's um, great to be speaking to you today. No, very excited to speak to you. To start us off, can you give us a bit of an idea of the work that you're currently doing? Yeah, so currently I am CEO of a company called Oncariz Medical. We're developing a new imaging technology to help surgeons get all the cancer out the first time. And we're focusing on breast cancer surgery where because surgeons have no tools that can enable them to identify cancer at a micro scale inside a patient during surgery, 30% of women will have to return for further surgery after breast-conserving surgery because they only discover that cancer is too close to the edge of what the excised specimen uh, when the pathologist does their review in the week after surgery is being completed. So uh, surgeons will be able to use our imaging probe inside the surgical cavity to identify tumor they've missed and remove all of it the first time. That's amazing. Is that ultrasound sort of technology or how does the technology actually work? Ah, great question. Well, it's similar in concept to an ultrasound. So we use light waves instead of sound waves. So we um, shine the light into the tissue and look at the reflections, very similar to ultrasound. So we image at a micro scale and we can image a sort of one to two millimetres deep into the tissue. But similar to ultrasound, we have a workstation, we've got a handheld probe and we also, different to ultrasound, have a disposable cap that sits at the end of our probe that is how we produce our images. So basically, we're creating micro-scale maps of tissue stiffness. We know that cancer is stiffer than healthy tissue from the cellular level up to the macroscopic. And that's why surgeons, currently what surgeons do is they often will use their sense of touch to help guide them as to, and to tr help try and identify tumour that they may have missed. Obviously, our sense of touch isn't that good. And as they're looking for a, a millimetre of cancerous tissue remaining, through at least one set of surgical gloves, it's not surprising that cancer is missed so often. So we're effectively creating an imaging technology that can give surgeons superpowers of touch. Mm -hmm. That sounds so incredible. What stage is it actually up to now? Like, have you got the device ready? Is it being used or where are we at? So 10 years since I first saw the technology, took us three years to develop the investment case to set up the company. And we've been operating for seven years now. We've shown on the bench shop on freshly excised specimens that we are 96% accurate at detecting cancer when you compare us to pathology. And as of last week, we scanned our 70th patient overall inside the surgical cavity. That's been over sort of four trials that we've scanned all of those patients. So we've now got a device that is scanning the surgeon is using to scan and capture images inside the patient in the last sort of 11 or 12 patients the surgeon's also been able to see the images that they're capturing in real time so yeah it's really really exciting and in the cases where there's been cancer 
protected by pathology, our technology has also detected it, which is incredibly exciting. So we're probably still two years away from being available on the market in Australia. And then we're, you know, heading to the US. Uh, so we're another trial away from being available there. So probably around four years to the US market. Cool. And has this all started in Australia, all the work so far done in Australia? Sure has. So invented through a collaboration between uh, engineers at the University of Western Australia and an amazing breast cancer surgeon and researcher, Professor Chris Bell Saunders, AO, who was both an academic at UWA and also a practicing surgeon at the Department of Health as well. And so they worked together on this technology. They started collaborating in 2011. And Christabel brought the clinical problem and the engineers developed a very, very um, nifty solution that is incredibly well suited for the purpose that it's intended to be used for. And how did you actually get involved? Were you involved from the beginning or did you get brought in later on? No, I wasn't involved. I was the money lady. So <laughs> um, I was working for, so after working in clinical medicine for a year and a half, I studied an MBA at UWA and uh, was lucky enough that there was a venture capital unit and it was a perfect combination for someone who's a complete science nerd and wanted to use science to really create change. And uh, so I worked for a startup diagnostics company for a year and then I've been in venture capital since 2006. In 2012, I started with a company called Brandon Capital Partners and WA was the first satellite office outside of their head offices, which are in Melbourne and Sydney. Brandon are Australia's largest life sciences venture capital fund. We've got a number of doctors who work as investment professionals for Brandon. And I was tasked with going and finding cool science that was happening in WA Department of Health and some of our medical research institutes here that had the potential to become really great products that really changed the way that we deliver healthcare. And so I first saw this, I, I still distinctly remember the moment that I was introduced to this, this technology, which was by one of the UWA tech transfer people back in 2013, because alongside working venture capital, I maintained my registration by doing surgical assisting. And so I spent a lot of time in theatre with surgeons and I could immediately see that this technology was just what I thought surgeons were looking for which was more information under their control to enable better decision-making and better surgical outcomes. And, I mean, I'm sure anyone who's listening who's spent time in theatre will knows what surgeons are like. They like to be in control. They don't like to wait for anyone. And I'd seen sort of we had one X-ray machine, the one C-arm that surgeons could use and three other X-ray machines that required someone from radiology to come up. And they used to have verbal fisticuffs across the theatre as different theatres um, as to who got to you, which surgeon was more important and who got to use the one that the surgeons were allowed to touch the buttons on because no one wanted to wait for a radiographer to come up and get the machine in from radiology. So, yeah, just being able to have that insight into being in theatre made it so much easier for me to recognise the value in this technology but then it did take me two years to convince the rest of the investors who didn't have the medical background at that time that, that this was really going to be a game changer. Are you still working in venture capital now? Yeah, I am. So I'm still a venture partner for Brandon. And uh, then uh, there's someone else uh, 
Dr. Helga Mickelson, who also works uh, with me in Western Australia as well, who's sort of taken over the day-to-day running of the WA business for Brandon. Now, for the uninformed, namely myself, what does it actually mean to work in venture capital? What does your day-to-day life and responsibilities look like and how do you get into that role? (laughs) Yeah, so um, in terms of day-to-day life, uh, I guess it totally depends on the fund you're in and also the role that you hold. But most people will get to work across the spectrum of the whole sort of life cycle of a venture deal. So the initial thing is like going and finding new deals, new cool technology that you believe fits the investment thesis of your fund and then sort of choosing projects out of that that you do a deep dive into to determine whether or not it's, it's going to be a suitable investment for the fund. So every fund has different criteria. But I think a couple of common themes with venture is that particularly when you invest at a really early stage, every deal that you invest in needs to look like it's going to return you 10 times the money that you invest in it over a, you know the period of time that your fund in a, a allows the investment to be held. So what you'll find if you ever go speak to a venture capitalist is you'll think they ask an awful lot of questions, but at the end of the day, what they're really trying to find is the answer to three questions, which is how much money do you want, how long are you going to have it for, and how much money are you going to give me back at the end if this is all a success. Um, in terms of Brandon, the way that we do it is, you know, we spend a lot of time with the teams and to get a really good understanding of the clinical problem that they are looking to solve, understanding how well the clinicians like around the world, well, do they even see that as a clinical problem? Do they recognise that it's there? Because unless clinicians recognise that there's a problem, they're not going to be wanting to adopt a new technical solution just because it might be a bit better if it doesn't produce this, you know, a proper clinical benefit for patients. So we spend a lot of time really, really understanding that side of things. And then also understanding the technology. So what are the advantages that technology has or has the potential to have? And we've got to be able to show that those advantages will still be around in 10 years' time because often, I mean, I've been working on this technology for 10 years. It's got another at least two before it gets to the Australian market. So any competitive advantages have got to look like they will last the distance in terms of being able to produce that clinical benefit and that will have significant advantages over other people who are also developing products to solve the same problem. Mm. And then, yeah, it also then involves putting deals together and then figuring out how to invest in those deals. And then once uh, an investment has been made, managing that deal and managing it towards helping it produce a good exit for the fund. So, which could be selling it to a company like a Johnson & Johnson or a Striker or one of the pharmaceutical companies or potentially listing it on a stock exchange. And how did you get those skills from going from med school? You said you did an MBA. Do you feel like that's where you learnt most of the sort of skills that you use in venture capital? Or Ah, that yeah, also a great question. So I definitely would say venture capital is an apprenticeship and not necessarily you can't go get a degree in it. So when I was leaving clinical medicine, I did a heap of investigating into, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved science. I knew that clinical medicine wasn't going to be the career that made me happy in the long term. Yeah, including going and interviewing for a pharmaceutical sales rep role and 
I got to the last two and the person interviewing me said, well, you know, we just can't choose you because we know that if you believe that there's a better outcome for patients, you won't be able, or, you know, if there's a better option for patients, you won't, won't be able to go and really sell Arthur your heart. I'm like, you are right. Of course I won't. I should have seen that one earlier. So I needed to go do an MBA. Well, I needed to go get some more training for 20 years ago for anyone to take a doctor wanting to do anything other than medicine seriously. Uh, and my husband had done an MBA and changed his career through it. So he had gone from a health-related role in environmental health to doing management consulting, which is was every MBA's dream. And I was lucky that at the time I did the MBA, the venture capital unit was there and we had some pretty spectacular speakers come in and speak. And it was definitely the most real world unit out of the MBA. I learned a lot of the sort of theory behind venture capital. I just thought it was seemed to be the most amazing thing that, you know, I could hope to do with my love of science and wanting to help people. It seemed to be a way that I could use that. So in terms of how I ended up in the role, that was a bit of luck as well because there are not many venture capital roles that become available. But some of those speakers who had come in and spoken to me, I stayed in touch with and it was actually one of my university friends that they approached to potentially work for them. And he said, no, I'm in mining, but you want someone in medical, you need to go speak to Kath. And so it was the kindness of someone else and, um, yeah, I interviewed for the role and it's been fantastic. Absolutely love it. Mm. It sounds like a great fit for you. You sound happy talking about it. Yeah. Passionate. Yeah. I'm intrigued to hear a bit more about your clinical career. What actually drove you to medicine in the first place? And then what made you feel like clinical medicine wasn't for you? Uh, so at school, I absolutely loved science. My dad was an academic. He worked in organic chemistry uh, and particularly he was looking to discover new drugs for cancer. And he said to me, I know you love science and I know you think you want to be a scientist, but he said from his career and his learnings, he felt that if I wanted to really create change and have an impact, which is what he wanted to do, um, that it was much easier to do that as the doctor rather than as the scientist. And he thought that it would be far better to go study medicine uh, and then I was fortunate that I had a cousin move from South Africa who was a doctor because I didn't have any doctors in my family. And she also strongly encouraged me to study medicine. And I thought, well, if I get the marks, you know, so that, you know, you all can kind of predict your score that you're going to get. And I thought I was definitely going to be borderline. But if I got the marks, that was fate intervening and that was the right thing to do. So I, yeah, got the marks and so studied medicine, loved the first three years because it's all about science. And so that was fantastic. And then got into the clinical years and really sort of started to wonder whether this was the right career for me. I'm glad I, I considered uh, leaving at that point. Uh, and I'm very glad I listened to my parents and completed my degree and then my intern year because if I'd left at that point, I would have had a whole science degree and very little recognition of any of what I'd studied. And also none of the things I've done since then would have been possible without having completed the degree and doing my internship. So I ended up working for a year and a half. And the reasons that there were sort of two main reasons 
that I decided that it wasn't going to be the career for me. The first one and probably the main one was that I am really way too empathetic. Uh, I really got attached to and really deeply felt for the patients that I was looking after and I'd spend way too much time crying in the in the stairwell or, you know, thinking about whether what if this is my dad or my my sister or my this and how their family must be feeling. And I quite like that I care so deeply about others and I knew that I was going to have to switch that off in some way because otherwise it just I just couldn't not take it home and I couldn't not I could not care. So yeah, I thought that 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 just was going to end really badly for me. And then I think the other thing that I really struggled with and perhaps it was again a function of the time and the circumstance that I did my internship under, but the hospital was very under-resourced and so Often I would be completely lacking in senior support and I remember working on the general medical team. Twice a week the consultant would come in. I didn't have a registrar with me every day. I was still quite early in my internship. I had a huge patient list and I'd go around and I'd know there's stuff that needs to be done for these people. I'd, I'd know what needed to be done but I couldn't do it. And it frustrated me that when I knew they deserved better care, and it, it wasn't able to be delivered and that really, really got to me as well. So I think the combination of those is what made me decide clinical medicine wasn't for me. I mean, I think the second the second thing definitely could have been solved by sticking at it longer, um, but, yeah, it was a combination, but it was the best decision I've ever made, although it was a very, very difficult decision to make at the time. Yeah. Did you think about leaving altogether? Because you said earlier that you maintained your registration. Are you still maintaining your registration now? Yes, I do, but now more in an administrative role. I loved surgery. I definitely could never have been the lead surgeon for a lot of the reasons I've just talked about, but I absolutely loved surgery. So I had been um, my roommate and friend for a while had done a lot of surgical assisting and so they got me into surgical assisting as well and I was really lucky to work until 2019 in theatre a lot of obstetrics a lot of um, orthopaedics and worked for fabulous surgeons and really really loved it it's more sewing so (laughs) I do love sewing Um, and yeah so I was in my element working in theatre. Is there anything that you would change about that if you went back and did it now? Would you change the fact that you went to med school or did your internship or any of those things? No, I wouldn't. I'm so grateful for my medical degree. Uh, Like I said, if I didn't have it and I didn't have my internship, none of what's happened since would have happened and I certainly wouldn't be in the role I am now. And I would also... I mean, it's a strange thing to say, but I think it's one of the best based, if you're going to go do a degree in law or in engineering medicine, I'm so grateful it was I got to do medicine um, because aside from where I've been able to take my career, I think the life skills and the perspective it gives you is something that you can, it's hard to describe to someone who hasn't studied medicine, but just, you know, you, you get to see things that very few people ever get to see and I think understand it (laughs) once you've uh, been at medical school it changes you forever and I'd say that yeah I'm really grateful very very grateful for it 
And I think the difficulty I had in terms of leaving medicine was that I really, when I chose medicine, it was strongly because I wanted to be in a position uh, in a career where I could help people. Uh, and then leaving medicine, that was what was really hard because it was like, how am I ever going to find another career where I can have as much of a positive impact on the world as I could have had as a doctor? And that's what you know, a lot of people around me at the time were saying, and because there were no obvious paths for doctors to do anything other than being a doctor without going and requalifying as something else. Um, yeah, that, that was a difficult time. But now having found, you know, it's been a, an adventure, but getting to work in the role I work in now, I have the potential to, you know, create a much greater positive impact than I ever would have one on one with patients. And what I love about it is I also get to do that alongside not only other doctors, but engineers, accountants, scientists. So it's not reserving the making a positive impact just for a medical professional. You know, you get to share that with, with a lot of other people. And it doesn't matter what degree they've trained in, there will be a role for them in the kind of company I work for. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued mostly because this is something that's on my mind, but have you felt that at any point in your career after leaving clinical medicine, you've been held back by not having a medical fellowship? Uh, That's a funny one. I think maybe it's also is a good time to point out that honestly for 20 years after leaving clinical medicine, I felt like a complete failure because I hadn't managed to stick it out. Like I wasn't tough enough. I wasn't strong enough, I wasn't confident enough, or all those things that I told myself about why I wasn't good enough to stay being a doctor. And so I think for a long time I thought about wanting to get a fellowship. I would love uh, having now, especially with getting to work with Deep and also Brandon on the Australian Society of Medical Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and getting to see and meet a lot of other people who've gone through or done a similar thing. My wish is that there would be this using your medical and clinical skills in an entrepreneurial way and creating this impact at scale was a better recognised, you know, pathway to take with your medical degree. And it's interesting because I, I got asked to go speak at the med students graduation maybe three years ago, and and it was at that point I finally like, oh, someone's recognised that this was, you know, I am still a doctor. I am, you know, it wasn't, I'm not a complete failure in terms of that side of things. So it would be nice though, I think, to be able to have some further training or a fellowship kind of thing for people who want to go into this area, that there is, you know, they can look not only at a couple of people, but they can, there, there is some more structure around it to help people find this. Wow. You've given some arguments in both directions there. Yeah. <laughs> not helped me make my mind up at all. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by the sewing thing, and we did talk a bit before we hit record, but I want to know, so you're a seamstress, sewing a lot of your own clothes I understand some of your family's clothes as well what's your favorite thing that you've sewn oh good well I've got to say there are so many and it's quite funny because a bunch of I think I was when I was leaving medicine I was just so dead keen to do something that wasn't medicine I really did go think about starting a fashion you know some kind of fashion label or design business and I think a lot of it's funny when there are people 
colleagues who I both, you know, haven't seen for 20 years, they're like, oh, did you start a um, clothing design business? No, <laughs> I didn't. Um, so favourite thing, I think one of the things I love sewing the best is um, Chanel-style jackets. So um, I do love all those, the materials and things that they use um, for those and it's a really interesting sewing technique that they follow. So that would probably be my favourite thing to make and I've made quite a few different versions of those. That sounds complex. They sound they seem quite rigid. It's amazing. There's a, there's a lot of um, engineering in them, but when you put one on, oh, it's the most softest cardigan. They're meant to feel like a cardigan and they really do. Are you working on anything at the moment? Yes. Oh, I'm, I've always got at least one thing on the go. I'm uh, sewing a dress at the moment. Wow. Lovely. Now, I've got one last question for you, and it may tie in with what we've just talked about, but we ask this to everyone that comes on the show, which is if you were to pursue a career outside of medicine, which for you includes venture capital and CEO of medtech businesses, what would you do? So if I wasn't doing any of those ones? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, definitely. Definitely if I could, I would uh, have a fashion design label for sure. Incredible. <laughs> I love that. I still think there's time. You can still make it happen. I'm, I'm hoping that was the rationale for not doing it 20 years ago. It's like if, I, if I'm going to have a proper career, I need to do the serious bit now. The other one can um, come later. Yes, love that. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Kath. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Lovely to talk to you too, Elise. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 